If you would, please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for... Just the opportunity to be able to unpack your word and analyze it, look at it, and and understand it, and then apply it to our life. Lord, I thank you for the, the ability to come together, even though we're not in person coming together on um, live streaming. And Lord, we, we just thank you even for that ability. We pray for the protection of our people, uh, that you would you would keep them safe. Um, Lord, we, we love you. We, we trust you. Our lives are in your hands. Now, Lord, as we look at this word, as we um, examine what you have to say to us, I pray that we would, you would find hearts that are prepared to apply to our lives what needs to be changed and needs to be corrected uh, in our thinking and applied to our lives in in physical action as well. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Bible is very clear on uh, what we are to do as citizens. Uh, God has established governments. He's the one that establishes nations. Whether it's a nation that exists and that has is dominated by... Um, uh, dynasties from one family to the next family, generations, or it, it may be a king or some conqueror that comes in and conquers another nation, or it could be um, it could be democratic elections, and that's what we are under today. But the Bible is clear that there is no power apart from God. There's no power but of God. God allows power to be. God has established government. In fact, it's a necessary uh, God-given institution. We need government. It is a good thing. But Daniel reminds us that that God causes, or God raises governments up and He tears them down as well. He weakens them. He takes away their influence and their power. And the purpose of government is to protect its people, protect the people. And also we see in Scripture is to promote what is right. The government has that responsibility. Now, that's a lot of rights. That's a lot of privileges. That's a lot of power for a government. In fact, the, the Bible goes on to say, and Christ affirms, that the government has the right to, to bear the sword, Christ said, and Paul said, um, and they are to be feared. There's a certain respect that we are to have for government, Romans chapter 13. They have a right to demand taxes of us as well. 
Now, that's a lot of power, like I said. But they also live under a great responsibility. They will, each each of those human agents of the government, whether it's a king or a representative, will give an account for their actions before the Lord someday. And so that should sober any of the legislators that are acting on our behalf today. Now, the United States, we have a, a unique form of government. We don't have a, a monarchy. We don't, we don't uh, submit to a person. We are self-governed. And that's a wonderful thing. We are self-governed. We have a, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We have inalienable rights. The government doesn't give us rights. Our rights come from God Himself. And those rights supersede anything that the government might uh, put on us. These God-given rights. And so we as a country who try to live underneath that, like I said, we don't submit to, to men and women, but we submit to laws. We submit to a constitution. We're, we've all agreed that we're going to live by certain laws, and so we send our representatives up to Washington, D.C., and to the state capitol, and they make the laws for us, and we have agreed that we're going to live under the laws that they, that they create, they make for us, for our protection and promoting what is, is good. And we have the privilege and responsibility then, if they don't make the laws that we like, then we can vote them out of office and put people in that we do like. Now, that's a huge privilege. And there's two ways that we need to respond to this. First of all, we need to be thankful. Now, Thanksgiving is coming up soon. And that's a, a wonderful time to remember our the country and the freedoms that we have at Thanksgiving time. And, and our hearts should be grateful to be able to live in a country with such freedoms. But also, the second response, or the second uh, reaction that we should have is that of responsibility. That responsibility of government comes down on our shoulders as well. We are self-governed. We are governed of the people, by the people, and for the people. And so the responsibility lands on us. And we need to be educated. We need to be educated. We need to know those who are leading us. We cannot just bury our heads in the sand. We can't just ignore. We have to be informed. I love the verse in First Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. It says, these men of Issachar, these sons of Issachar, it said, these, these were men who understood the times. Now, oh Lord, raise up men in this country that understand the time. It goes on to say, with knowledge of what Israel should do. And, and folks, we have to have men and women who understand the time and understand God's Word enough to say, here's what we should do. We, we need that. Men, I encourage you, we're not leading just our families. We're leading communities. We're leading a state. We're leading a nation, a government. And those are important responsibilities that, that uh, land on our shoulders, and we need to be informed. Now, with that in mind, I started thinking, well, what is a, a theology of citizenship? We need to be good citizens. So what's a, a theology of citizenship? Um, 
The Bible is is clear. There's a lot of information about being a good citizen. And we just want to take a big picture view here in just preparation for our passage. Um, so we just kind of want a, a big overview of being a good citizen as a as a Christian. The foundation of that is found in Genesis, of course. In Genesis chapter 1, we, we are told that God has created us to rule. And that's interesting. He's created us to rule, to be fruitful, and multiply. So that kind of overshadows everything else. In Genesis chapter 4, and verse 9, God confronted Cain, and, and He says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, well, am I my brother's keeper? That the implication of that is, yes, yes, you are your brother's keeper. Now, that means that we, we are not independent of one another. We share this planet, and we have to love one another. We have a responsibility to do that. In Genesis chapter 9, in verse 6, we have the basis for government. It says, whoever sheds man's blood by men, his blood is to be shed. So we have, a, we have responsibility to, to rush in and protect people. We have an, we are, men are accountable. Men and women are accountable to protect life. Now that's the foundation, that's the basis of, of government. In Romans, in the New Testament, we see that we are to live a peaceable and quiet life. As good citizens, that's the way we are to be, to live peaceable with all men, as far as, as much as it depends on us. In Romans chapter 13, we're to submit to government. We've, we've been looking at that. And Christ confirms this and He says that we are to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That is taxes and honor, but give to God what is God's. And that is the heart. The heart belongs to God. Now, as believers, we're somewhat distinct here. There's some distinctions that we have. Christ told us, as good citizens, we are to be in the world, but we're not of the world. There's a little bit of a detachment there. And we need to understand that as, as good citizens. And there's a couple of verses that, uh, that come to mind, and I, I want you to, to know these verses because there's dangers here that we need to be aware of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's the first danger. Paul mentions this. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Don't associate with immoral people. Now, we would think that's the immoral people of the world. But he goes on to clarify. He says, I did not mean with the immoral people of the world, the covetous, the swindlers, and with idolaters, for then we would have to go out of the world. The first danger is that we isolate ourselves, that we bury our head in the sand. We don't, we, we kind of be like the Amish and just completely detach from the world. And Paul says, do not do that. But he does say, now, Listen to this. He does go on and say, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with the so-called brethren. Those who claim to be Christians that are living the immoral life, you are not to associate those, but the unbeliever, we have to. There's an association. There's a, there's a, uh, just a, a, a rubbing shoulders that we will have with the unbeliever. That's just a natural thing. We're not to detach ourselves completely from the world, isolate ourselves from the world. We're to associate with the world. Here's another danger. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in chapter 6, Paul goes, that, that's in one extreme. Paul goes to another extreme. He says, 
verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. So, so don't stop associating with unbelievers, but don't go to the, to the point of, of being partners, he says. For what partnership was righteousness and lawlessness and what fellowship is light with darkness? Don't become partners with them. That would be business partners. That would certainly be marriage partners. So, so that would be the other extreme, the other danger. As good citizens, we have to be careful about our, our connection with the world. Now, the best picture in the Old Testament of a good citizen is in, Genesis, is in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse, um, verse 4. I'll read this. He says this, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, to all the, all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now here's the situation. You've got some godly people that he has sent out of the country, exiled them by punishment, and he sent them into an ungodly land. That would be Babylon. And here's what he tells them to do. And that's very much our situation now, today, isn't it? Ungodly people, in an ungodly world, we have godly people. And, and here's, here's what he said to do. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and become fathers, uh, and become the father of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. Just flourish. Be prosperous. That's the idea. And then he goes on to say, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray to God on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. Become part of that city. Pray for the the wealth of that city. Pray for the prosperity of that city. And then be productive members of that city. That's a wonderful picture. In fact, that's the same picture, isn't it, that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that Paul gives to Timothy. In chapter 2, he says to pray for the unbeliever. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For kings, pray for kings and for all who are in authority, so that you may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's the same picture. Just be productive members of society, build homes, build gardens, uh, or produce uh, work and, and thrive. In the Old Testament, we might say that to be fruitful and multiply. In second, in First uh, Timothy chapter two, um, or I'm sorry, in First Peter chapter three and verse fifteen, Peter tells us the reason. What's the benefit of living this productive life? He says, For sanctify Christ is Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks of you to give an account for the hope that lies within you. When they see, when they see that you're working and that you're prospering and you're, they're enjoying life, there's hope within you, they're gonna ask, he says, be ready to give an answer for that, that hope. 
That hope is produced by this lifestyle that they see. They see this lifestyle, this godly lifestyle, and they say, what's the hope there? What, what drives you? What motivates you? Now, let me give you one more passage for this citizenship theology. First, Second Corinthians chapter 3. This will pull it all together here. Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul says this, he says, therefore, having such a hope, we use we use great boldness in our speech. That hope that we are living out in our life, that hope by raising children, by by producing, producing, by being productive members of society, living out that lifestyle of hope, people are going to ask. And that hope gives us boldness, he says, in our speech. This becomes a platform for the gospel, doesn't it? This lifestyle of hope that we are to live, we are to be fruitful and multiply, producers, builders of society. And that starts with a righteous life and a righteous family and a righteous home. And it just expands out from there. Now, Satan is trying to do just the opposite, folks. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy. And he would love to destroy the family. And he'd love to destroy any institution, especially the government. We have to be good citizens. Good citizens. And we understand what good citizenship is. Now, with that in mind, turn to our passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. And mainly we're going to look at 15, 16, and 17. But we've been asking questions about this, this passage. And there's six questions about just humble submission to government as a mandate for the believer. Humble submission is a mandate. That we submit ourselves to the government. And so we've been asking questions about that. And there's six questions. The first question is really uh, just a, a simple question is, is what is the specific command? What exactly are we to do? And he just says submit. And that's the knee-jerk reaction of the believers. The preset button that we, we push when the, the government says for us to do something. We say yes, sir. And we submit. It's a wonderful thing. It's a good picture. Number two, the second question is that to what extent then do we submit? And he says to every human institution, uh, that's the structures of our society. These God-given institutions, they, they build our society. And he goes even as far as to a corrupt king, even those who we don't agree with. He says submit to them. That's, to, that's the extent. Now what's the motivation behind this? We see this in verse 13. He says, for the Lord's sake. We do it just to honor God. We desire to glorify God. We desire to please God. As long as these institutions don't conflict with God's authority, we submit. But God is the highest authority. And, and all of His standards, or we're, we're submitting ourselves to all of His standards. That would include government as well. Now, the fourth question is why? Why do we do, why do we submit? And on a practical level, what benefit? Why do we do that? He actually gives us three three answers here in verse fifteen. In verse fifteen, for such is the will of God. 
It's just, it's God's will. He says that the command is, verse 13, is submit yourself to the Lord's, uh, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In verse 15, he says, for such is the will of God. You want to know God's will for your life? Submit to government. That's what God wants. It's God's will. We submit. The second reason he gives, such is the will of God, that by doing right, the, the, another reason for us to submit is, is because it's just the right thing to do. We are pursuing righteousness. For those people who are pursuing righteousness, it's the right thing to do, to submit to government. But here's the practical reason. By doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Silence the ignorance of foolish men. The word silence there is to put a muzzle on them. Uh, to, to restrain their speech. Um, to, to render them incapable of responding. Now, if you're in a good debate, that's, that's ultimately what you want from, from that debate is they, they have nothing they can say. And he says that we are to, to, they're to be silent. We're to, uh, to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The word ignorance there is an interesting word. It's not just lack of knowledge. It's not that they don't know. It's they are willfully rejecting that truth. They, they buy into a false stereotype. Now, I want you to see one verse. I thought this verse was interesting and just draw it to your attention. In Acts chapter 28, Paul's in a situation where uh, he's writing these things and these, these people who knew him previously, they just, they mention this. Verse 22, Acts chapter 28, verse 22 says this, But we desire to hear from you. Now these are, are people that knew Paul formally. We desire to hear from you what your views are. What are you thinking about? We've heard some rumors, Paul. says, for concerning this sect, that would be Christianity. Concerning this sect. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. This new sect, this Christianity that we've heard Paul is a part of, um, uh, it's spoken against everywhere. Now what's, what's that talking about? There's a false stereotype of the believer in Rome. They had a, a false picture, a false image of Christianity. They knew that Paul was a part of that, and they wanted to hear what Paul had to say, and his, his views concerning these, these things. I thought that was really interesting. This false, uh, this, this cloud of suspicion that was in the Roman world about the Christians, there was, I mentioned it last week, they, they thought they were pagans because they wouldn't worship the gods, they thought they were rebelling against Rome, they thought they were cannibalistic because they were eating the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. They thought they were incestuous because they were marrying brothers and sisters. You could see this false stereotype being gossiped around Rome and the whole Roman world. This misunderstood stereotype. Now we understand stereotypes. In this day, we stereotype everything. You, you, you go to every commercial, you go to every sitcom on TV, and you see stereotypes. People playing a certain role that they think that that's what the role is to be played. And I will tell you today, folks, that there is a stereotype of the Christian today that is false. That's false. And we are to submit to the government. Part of 
our lives or we are to submit to government because we want to silence the critics because of their faults, their, their un, their, their foolish understanding of the Christian, the Christian life. And is, and when we live a, a righteous life, it causes them, it forces them to create lies about us, to create this false stereotype, these these images of these these Christians that are kind of whacked out, a kind of extreme, kind of way out there. Righteous conduct stops the mouths of gospel critics. Now, so many people today claim the name of Christ. But they do more damage because they claim to be Christians, but they, their lives do not match what it is to be a Christian. And so there's a false stereotype that we see, that we see today. And folks, genuine believers need to correct that. And they correct that with a godly life. With a, with a true image. A true image of, of righteousness. If there's a, if you throw mud against a, a veneer, it doesn't stick. When when they when the unbeliever throws accusations against Christians, it shouldn't stick because everybody sees the lifestyle, and they say, no, that that's just that's just not true. It's not true. Now I was noticing how shiny the, you can't see it on screen, but how shiny the the piano is. There's a veneer on that piano, and I thought, man, I bet if I throw mud on that piano, it wouldn't stick, it would just slide right off. Now, don't tell Kim. I didn't do that or anything. But that's the idea. They throw the accusations, we have a righteous life, it's like veneer, and it just just drops right off. This life of integrity, this good moral fiber, the, the purity, is a tool to muzzle... The enemy of Christianity. Now we need to know this. We, we need to know that our lives influence what other people think about God. And what other people think about Christianity. We need to live our lives in, in light of that. So that means that the more important thing in our life, the primary concern of the Christian life is not our comfort. We'll give up that comfort for the sake of eternity, for the sake of the gospel. It's not about our comfort. Our lives are expendable for the sake of the gospel. We live godly, righteous lives for the sake of the the purity of the gospel and what other people think about God and other people think about Christianity for the sake of the gospel. So why do we submit Because it corrects the lies. Number five, another question that we need to look at here that Peter answers for us is how should we view submission to the government? How do we view that? What do we think about this? In verse 16, he he makes it clear. He says, act as free men. Act as, as free men. Now, we all... We all want to be autonomous. We all want to be free and independent. We don't, we're not slaves. In fact, we think we're not slaves, but we actually are. We're either slaves to sin and unrighteousness, slaves of this fleshly body, or we're slaves of righteousness. We're all slaves, but we are free men as Christians. Why? Because God has freed us. 
God has, by His grace, saving grace, if you put your faith and trust in Him, He has freed us from, from sin and from the condemnation of sin. Because of the sacrificial life of, of Christ, we are freed from the penalty of the law. We're freed from Satan's bondage. We're, we're freed from the, the world's control and the death, uh, or in the power of death. We don't serve those masters anymore. We're under new management. We have a different owner, and that is, that is God. We're slaves of righteousness. And he says, we're, act as free men. Act as though you're completely free to do what God wants you to do. You're, you're independent of those, those fleshly and, and worldly and satanic drives and motives. And he says, there's a warning here, it says, act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a, as a covering for evil. Now that's interesting. It's a covering for evil. These spiritual freedoms, this religious freedom, can, can be a, a really a mask, he says, a covering. It's a, a veil. Something that you put over the city. You can't see it so well. Something's going on behind the scenes. There's some ulterior impure motives that can go on in, in, in light of our freedoms. Now we know that, don't we? We, we are so free. Oh, I can do this and I can do that. And before long, you realize that you're being enslaved again by the flesh. The, the sinful flesh. You're just indulging the sinful flesh. You're not, you're not free. You're a slave. And that's what he's talking about. So many times our, our righteous life or our, our life of freedom, our life of freedom is more of a self-centered life, self-gratification life, a life of, of self-focus and pride at the heart level. Something that nobody else sees, of course. On the outside, we, we claim religious freedom. On the inside, we're motivated by sinful flesh. And that's what Paul is saying here. Sometimes we can be motivated by pride. Sometimes we can be motivated by, by control and dominance and, or, or even vengeance and bitterness and rebellion in light of freedoms. Oh, we're doing it for freedom. But folks, we're really slaves of God and He is the higher power and we're serving Him. We're not Ultimately free, we're bond servants of God anyway. Now here's the picture. Here's what I want you to see. Paul, or Peter here, is, is calling for us to be voluntary sum, uh, submission. He's calling for voluntary submission uh, of the believer. Voluntary submission. We all want to be free. And as Christians, we are free. There's a certain detachment that we have from the world. We're not slaves to sin anymore. And it's a wonderful thing to be not a slave to Satan and his lies. We are detached, but our freedoms, we're free to submit ourselves to, to God. Now let's just apply this a little bit. Because we dare not abuse the privileges that we have to indulge the flesh. Because that's, that happens so easily. We, we become detached from the world as, as believers in the world systems. 
we are to voluntarily submit ourselves to, as God's servants, to the government. And that's just a, an amazing picture for me. I'm free. I'm free. But yet, I voluntarily submit myself to this higher authority. To, to ultimately to God, but then to this lower authority of, of the government. I voluntarily submit myself to that. I don't have to serve them. I mean, they don't own me. They don't own my property. They don't own my children. They don't own my mind. He says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Check your motives. And that would be just an application for us, isn't it? We have to check our hearts. We have, to, we have to think, why am I not wanting to submit? Is it because just the flesh... Because I, I want to indulge the, the flesh, maybe my own revenge, it's maybe because I'm angry, maybe because I, I just don't like to be told what to do. We have to check that. Now, sometimes there's a legitimate good reason for disobedience. The government tells us to, to shut down church, you cannot worship. We have to go back to the government, we can appeal, but we have to go back to the government and say, look, whether it's right to obey God or man, you decide, but we're going to obey God. But sometimes we use that liberty as just an opportunity to serve ourselves and not serve God. And so there's a danger. I would rather voluntarily submit and keep reproach from coming upon the name of the Lord than to, for, for me to just be motivated by my own sinful flesh. There's certain things that we just cannot do. So we submit. Certain, and we have a new master, and that's God Himself. So the way we are to think about this submission is a, a voluntary submission. We're free, but we voluntarily submit ourselves. Now, number six, this, this is the last, uh, last question we'll look at at this passage. What's the proper attitude? What's the proper attitude of this submission? And we see this in verse 7, or 17, verse 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now that sounds like a little quote, a little something that you might see on Facebook or a little plaque that you might hang on the wall. But that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Honor all people. There's a certain dignity and a certain respect that we are to have to all people. We, Paul says we have a debt of love that we owe to everyone. Everyone is in the image of God and we... They deserve our respect and we're to, to honor them. And I, I love the example of Christ at, at this point. He, he could have used force and demanding. But the description of Christ was that He was full of grace and truth. Number two, we were to love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. That's what He, he says here. Christ, remember Christ said, They will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. There's a certain love that Christians should have for one another and a care and a, and a concern for each other. And he says, fear God. Depend on God. Trust God. Respect God's thinking and God's viewpoint and God's perspective. We submit ourselves ultimately to Him. And then we honor the King. Whether we agree with the King or not. Whether he is a, a worthy king, worthy of our respect or not, we submit ourselves to him. 
Now, the picture here, he uses the word honor and love and fear or respect. The picture here is grace, isn't it? It's a picture of grace. The believer's life is, is one of, of grace. It's a life of getting along with others. It's a life of forgiveness. It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life of, of love. It's a life of humble submission. It's a life of, of grace. We're to be gracious. We're to be gracious. And the unsaved recognize virtue. They recognize love in our lifestyle. They, they recognize that graciousness. They recognize that humble submission, that voluntary submission. They, they recognize that righteousness in the believer's life. Then God is glorified. God is glorified. And He is properly seen. They have the right image of God. And they say, yes, that's, that's the true and living God. And the Gospel is unleashed. And we are useful, productive citizens for God's sake. When the world sees that. But, but when the world sees, when the world only sees the stereotype, the angry Christian, protesting Christian, the, the Christian just out there for his own rights, doesn't care about the other people's rights, just a, his own rights. They see a, a privileged person, uncaring, unsharing, and God is not glorified. God is not glorified. It's just a false stereotype that people just want to put us into that label, put us into that category. Oh, you're just like those Christians. All the other Christians. But we're to live a righteous, genuine, genuinely righteous life, and that's a life of, of grace. Anything else, anything else is, it brings a veil. To the gospel. It brings unclarity to, to God, the image of God and, and Christianity. It's veiled. People don't have a, a clear view of, of what genuine Christianity is. And I, I pray sometimes, I, I pray, Lord, purge the church from this foolish stereotype that the, the world sees of us. And I think the only thing that's going to do that sometimes is is punishment, is persecution. Now, here's the deal. We would love to have all kinds of more answers about how to be a, the right citizen. Detailed list. But Peter doesn't give us action points here. He doesn't, he doesn't say, do this and then do that and then do this other thing. But he deals with the things that we need to know. And that's the heart attitude. He deals with... Those things of love and, and respect and, and honor and grace because those are the things of righteousness. Those are the things of godliness. Those are the things that make up a, a righteous life and that's what's more important. Because of the sake of the gospel, for the testimony of Christianity. So what do we do? We submit. To what extent we submit to all government, we submit to all human institutions. 
What's our motive? For the sake of Christ, for the gospel's sake, for God's sake. Why do we do it? For silence the speech of the unbeliever. Those lies of the unbeliever. To correct those lies. How should we think about submitting? It's a voluntary submission. We're free, but we voluntarily submit. And what's the proper attitude, folks? The proper attitude is graciousness. We're just to be gracious. We live a gracious life. Will people take advantage of us? Yeah. Do we want to take our own revenge? Sometimes we do. But the Lord says, no, I'll, I'll take care of that. We're to be gracious. The believer's life that will silence the accusers is a life of humble, voluntary submission to the government. The Bible doesn't give us all the answers. We would love to have all the answers, but we just we don't have those. But we have what we need. We have all that we need to know. All that we need to know. Christians should be able to thrive in a dictatorship. Christians should be able to, to thrive, even in a communist country. Christians should be able to thrive in whatever nation and, and government that God may raise up. Christians can stand out. Because we live a godly life. It doesn't give us all that we want, but it does give us what we need and it does give us the proper attitude. The proper attitude that the Christian is to have and the Christian is to maintain. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I just thank you for your kindness to us to, to give us this um, information, information that we need so that, so that we can go out and live a quiet, peaceable life, a life of hope, a life that's attractive to the unbeliever when they, when they genuinely look and, and they see, oh, that's what Christianity is like. And Lord, when we live that life that produces a hope within us and that, that produces a, a boldness in our speech, Lord, may we have that. May we have a church that can't meet together necessarily, but boy, we're out in the community and people are seeing Christ in our life. They're seeing godly lives. They see us as free men and women submitting to a corrupt government sometimes. And Lord, may they say, what a powerful gospel that is. What a powerful God they serve to be able to produce that change in their life, in their heart. God, may you get the glory for any amount of righteousness that is lived out and that is seen by an ungodly world. May you get the glory. And may the gospel be just unleashed and people say, that's what Christianity is like. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.